church's lesson has been in the past 200 years is to think through why, what went wrong with our defenses. Why have we permitted the non-Christians to seize the initiative and so discredit Scripture like they have? Where are the flaws in the argument? And it's questions like these that force us to come down to this material where we say it boils down to presuppositions. The heart is desperately wicked. The heart controls how the mind thinks. Now, on a small scale, we all intuitively know this. You know when you're upset, you have certain moods and you think certain ways. And you know at heart that that's wrong, but you can't help it. That is the way you feel today. That's just an elementary depiction of heart over mind. People who are convinced of certain ideologies will reinterpret everything in terms of that ideology. So, presuppositions are important, and that's why tonight I'm going to go through all of the handouts and summarizing the key points. Here's one of the things that, these are just observations, but all I can tell you is, if you'll be careful to think through with me tonight, take down notes where you feel like you want to take down notes, because I'm telling you, you're going to run into this. Sooner or later, you're going to run into these things. One of the things that is a cliche out there is that there are hundreds and hundreds of different versions of creation. And that the reason we can't, for example, teach creation in the public school is because why, if we let the Christians teach creation, we would have the Hindus, we'd have the Baha'is, we would have the Buddhists, we would have the Shintoists, and we'd have 101 different varieties, and we haven't got time for that, so we solve the problem by eliminating all of them. That's common. I ran into that right here in Harford County when I was at a school board meeting. Man standing right in back of me said that. One of my fellow engineers, scientists over at Aberdeen Proving Ground, in fact. So, the answer to that is that there aren't 101 varieties of creation stories. When you look at the basic core principles, the basic beliefs underlying these stories, there are only two kinds. Yes, there are maybe 101, you know, physical stories. But as far as the basic principles, there are only two kinds. Only two kinds. And we will review those tonight. There are the pagan kinds and there are the biblical kinds. The pagan kind, all reality, one level. And that's what we talked about. We talked about the continuity of being, which we're going to get into tonight again. In fact, I think just to review, we'll just use one of the overheads that we went with last time, even though we'll get into this more, so don't worry. It's still not clear for you. Don't worry about it. We'll, get, we'll circle around and take this in again. But I come back to this fundamental difference here. In the Christian view, we believe in creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, so that God and the creature are different. Christianity believes in two levels of existence. The creator and the creation. This is a profound point. Don't miss this point. We are going to go over this and over this and over this again and again and again, week after week after week after week. We're going to deal with language. We're going to deal with science. We're going to deal with Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. We're going to deal with all these things and this theme will go reverberating your soul after eight to ten weeks of this. 
Christians believe in the creator-creature distinction that the world is not the same as God, God is not the same as the world. Those are two distinct entities and it's the most profound difference that exists. There was a time, in other words, or it's conceivable to have God existing without any universe. No physics, no math, no language, no creature language. Nothing except God and God alone. That's the fundamental existence. And then, in addition to that, at a point, God speaks the universe into existence and we now have two existences. The creator-creature distinction. All other views, all other views, believe that there's only one level of existence. That there's, quote, reality, the world, the universe, the cosmos, call it whatever you want to, 101 different names, but it's always the same idea, again, and again, and again. So that, for example, the Greeks believed there was this world in which there were gods, men, trees, minerals, water, fire, and so on, all part of the same thing, the cosmos. View the cosmos as a big house indwelt by gods and men. That's not the biblical view. The biblical view says that before the house was, God is. The biblical view has two levels of reality and the pagan view has only one level of reality. And we will see that this has tremendous... This colors your whole view of language and logic, which in turn controls how you set up tests for truthfulness and falsefulness. You can't even define truth unless you define it in terms of that or you define it in terms of this. This is why we're going to get into some very radical things that Genesis calls us to as Christians, where the church has slopped up and become become frankly sloppy here. And we're just learning. It's taken us 200 years to think this through. The position here where the creator-creature distinction, I've listed the areas where this exists in the world, where you can find this kind of distinction. Obviously, you find it in the Bible. Historically, it existed in ancient Israel. Historically, it existed in those ancient monotheisms that I refer to. I have those quotes from Historically, today, the only place you find it is in fundamentalist circles. We're the, left, the only people left in, on, in society today that seriously believe this. No one else believes this. We're, we're in a house by ourselves. All, everyone has given up this belief fundamentally today. Everyone else in the world believes in this. That fundamentally, there's just one level of reality, God, man, and everything else in that level of reality. And where you find this, you find it in ancient myths. You find it in Eastern religions. New Age is coming out of Eastern religions. You find it in Western philosophy, and you find it in modern theology. The church itself, in its liberal version, spawned this thing. So, this is a distinction that we're getting at, and we'll go over it again and again. Also, since we have this overhead, this diagram, there's one thing down the bottom that I want you to see is that if this is so, the front, it's a defining thing, the creator-creature distinction. God is infinite, but he is personal. This is such a core thing, and, and this is not just abstract and philosophical. This is going to impact spiritually where you are at, where I am at. Because what this says is that furthest back you go, down to the basic, 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 basic levels, you find there's a person there. Truth, ultimately, is not a naked principle or an abstract principle that's sitting there floating. Truth is a person. 
And the dramatic things we will learn in the next chapter is that the idea of logic is derivative of the attributes of God. It's not the other way around. You don't have your logic principles and think about God. You first have God who defines what logic is. And then after that, we discuss things. It's not the case that we have language and we use language to talk about everything, including God. No, no, it's the other way around. First, we have the Creator and the Word, who is the second personality of the Trinity. And what we call language is a creature version of Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God. Language originates out of the second person of the Trinity. So, all these things are derivative of the character, nature, and being and attributes of our God. He is fundamental. Everything else is derivative. But if you believe in this side, since all reality is one, God's man and everyone else, then the thing is ultimately impersonal. If you go further back and back and back and back and back, like I said, you come out to a force, an it, Star Wars, the epic film of, of the last decades. It was a perfect depiction. That, that epic series is wonderful, it's adventurous, and it's philosophically the same thing as an ancient pagan myth. Because ultimately you go back to the force. Not a person, a force. And that's precisely Penn. It's always the call of paganism. It, you get back, further back, there's lurking this shadowy, mysterious force or fate. That's another favorite Latin term, fatus. F-A-T-E, capital F, fate. Horoscope, people, believe in this sort of thing. It's sort of a fate, and a horoscope becomes a means for ascertaining this mysterious fatus that's behind the universe. So, you can see that from the modern, uh, the, the things you read in the paper, it's all mythological. It's all part of this thing on the right side, and it's all a defiance against the triune, sovereign, personal, authority-speaking God of the Trinity. It's all an act of rebellion against him. Because here we have to do with a creator to whom we are all held responsible. On the right side, we, along with God, share the universe together. He is bigger than we are, but he's only bigger than we are. He's only quantitatively larger. But on here, God is qualitatively different. God differs in kind. On the pagan view, God differs only in degree. He's like a superman. He's like us, but he's stronger. But he's still like us. He's just a bigger version of us. That's not so scripturally. So, these, this thing we come back to again and again. Well, let me make another point here. I, I use the word presupposition. Some of you have asked, can you just explain this a little bit better? A little bit. Let me cycle around and try to grab this again. Don't confuse presupposition with premise. If you argue logically, you remember, how, I don't know how many of you, when you were in school, you took a course in plain geometry maybe, and you had to do little proofs. And you always had to start out your logic and you had one line and then the next line, next line. You always started with a premise and then you had your derivations. Presupposition can be a premise, but that's not the way we're using it. Presupposition means your basic worldview that underlies your premises. In other words, underlies your very view of language, underlies your use of math, underlies everything in life. That's what we're talking about by presupposition, a basic worldview. And here's some things that maybe you want to take down. Another way of looking at this is this way. Everyone brings it to the table. 
We're sitting down for a discussion at a table. Everybody that sits down at the table comes to the table with baggage. You and I and every other human being come to the table with an agenda and with baggage. That baggage and that agenda is your worldview. That's your presuppositions. That's what we're talking about. And where the church over the last 200 years has not been careful, it's as though we Christians have come to the table, the non-Christian on the other side of the table, and we've said, oh, we basically are here in neutrality and we are here to discuss an issue. And there's where we lost it. We keep losing it every time because we start buying into their agenda. We start saying, if you ask me a question, Mr. Unbeliever, I will give you an answer. What we should say is, maybe we won't give you an answer because your question is wrong. Maybe at the table when someone comes, how many times last week did you beat your wife? That's not an appropriate question and we do not answer those questions. Because they are questions that have already set up the answer so you can't answer them without buying into the agenda of the question. Now think how many times we do that. This is the way Satan does it. How did Satan trap Eve ultimately? He sucked her into his own little logical vortex and once the woman was in there, she just flew down the line logically, but she bought into his agenda. For example, what was the one thing he came to Eve and said? The first thing right out of the bat that should have been the signal that he's asking wrong questions. Has God said? Huh? See, once we're... Once, if you, think about this for a minute. Has God said? In other words, here's God's word. He has said it. Where is it? Right here. Here's God's word. He has said it. But has God said it? Now, what, what is the baggage that's come to the table in that question? Let's think about that. What is the baggage that sets up the question so every time you answer it, you've sucked it up and you become absorbed into his agenda? The implication of the question, and get this now, the implication of Satan's question to Eve, has God said, is that it's so unclear that God has said it, we have to question it. That's the implication. In other words, Satan's agenda is that God, if he has spoken, hasn't spoken clearly. There's a doubt whether what he said he really meant or already said. And then we start saying, well, let's see, how can I be assured to prove that God said? And we sit here, how can we prove God said? And boom, we fall right off into the trap because there's was the wrong premise in the argument. The argument started assuming what God said was unclear. And we have no right to do that. To say that what God said is unclear is to say that God mumbles. Think about it. Isn't that amounting to the fact that God is a poor communicator? The source of language is a poor communicator? We can't tell whether God said something? If, friend, if we can't tell whether God said something when he speaks... How do we know anybody says something when they speak? You see what we're saying? You have absorbed an agenda when you went to answer the wrong question. I don't know if uh, you probably get tired of listening to the, to the O.J. Simpson trial, but when you watch trials like that, do you notice how the attorneys 
try to ask questions and the judge will come in and stop it, shut it off. The judge is forever stepping on the lawyers for asking questions. Now, why do you suppose the judge is doing that? Because the attorneys are asking questions with agendas in them. They're trying to influence the court by the way they ask the question. So, big point to remember here. Presuppositions stick to everything you say, including questions. And before you go out of here and you try to answer a question from someone, be careful of what kind of flypaper do we have hooked onto the bottom of this question. Or we're going to do, repeat the same thing Adam and Eve went through in the garden. All over again, hundreds of times we do this again and again. I do it still. It's a maturity and a wisdom that takes time to develop. And most of all, what it takes is spiritual sensitivity of a quiet prayer to the Lord. Lord, is this truth? Is this you? Do I hear your voice in this? No matter what the question is, always look to him for truth. Don't shut things off and then immediately start answering questions like a, like a machine without talking to God about the question you're being asked to answer. And students particularly, you've got to do this. You are living in a world that is totally 99% oriented against everything you believe. And you have got to develop while you're a young person, so you don't get 50 or 60 years old before you get these habits started. While you are young, you want to develop the skill of going to your conscience and going to God before you open your mouth. Before you start wildly thinking stuff, where is this coming from? And if you get a red light in your conscience, you say, whoa, hold it. I want to run this one by again. Sometimes you're going to be rushed, for example, in a classroom situation where you've got an assignment. You've got to get done for the test. Uh, yeah, okay, you've got to get it done for the test. But I'll tell you something, a little trick I learned. Good Christian students have learned something. Yes, you have to get your assignment done. But write a little note to yourself. There's something wrong here. I don't understand this. I've got to come back to this. I know what the teacher wants. I know the answer they're after. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll go through the motions. But there's something that smells in this thing. And I don't have time right now to study it through. And I don't have the books to go to. But there's something that stinks here. And I want to find out what's going on. So write yourself a note. And you go through a course like that, you'll probably have 15 or 20 notes to yourself. And I'll tell you something. You want to grow spiritually? You take one or two of those notes and start doing research. Pray that God would lead you in his scriptures and what other Christians have thought about in those scriptures and it'll transform your life. Because now all of a sudden you're doing something that's rarely done in the church. You're connecting Bible-believing truth to real-world issues. And it's dynamite to do that. But it doesn't come without a lot of sweat and a lot of work. And oftentimes, I grant you that it takes time and we're all rushed to do this. Okay. Here, I've summarized this kind of thing under four points. So let's try to get these in your notes. One, everyone is carrying around presuppositions. Everyone, your teacher, the author, a, a journal article, the scriptwriter of a TV shot, everyone has presuppositions. No person is neutral. The text references on that, I give you the proof for a non-neutrality on page four of the handouts. 
the proof, there's no question, that there's no neutrality. That proof is a proof in the formal sense of the word. I can defend that as a proof. I can prove to you there is no such neutrality and that proof is on page four. Point two, how do you discover presuppositionals? By listening to people. Here are some things to listen for. Listen for universal language. Examples. A, L, L. Whenever somebody says, well, all people believe, or it's always true, A, L, W, A, Y, S, adverb of universal, an adverb, A, L, L, universal adjective, A, L, W, A, Y, S, universal adverb. I see Cindy back to back there and she will correct my English if I'm wrong. S-H-O-U-L-D, should or ought, O-U-G-H-T, should or ought statements. Very crucial. You know what? why? When you hear that word, should or ought, what are you really hearing? You're hearing somebody's ethical standard coming out. Somebody has a standard. Oh, oh, I thought we were neutral. We didn't have any standards. Oh, we're bringing standards in. Oh, where do those things come from? Gee, how about that? Should or ought. They are the signs, they are the language pieces, the signals, flashing lights to you that here comes somebody's standard, here comes their absolute, here comes their presupposition. Watch it. Another universe, a negative universal, N-E-V-E-R. Never. This never should be done. Oh, why? Now, sometimes it takes 10 or 15 more questions to figure out what's beneath that. I mean, sometimes it's very slippery and slimy. But at least these words will give you cues in your own thinking. I mean, think of your own conversation. When you use these words, are you using them such that these universals Always reflects scriptural principles. Careful. Another couplet of words, two nouns. Whenever somebody uses right and wrong. Particularly the word right. That is so used today. R-I-G-H-T. A right. Just heard the other day there was a group of uh, philosophers and scientists that got together and they are petitioning the United Nations to make it a standard for the entire world that chimpanzees and certain gorillas will have human rights. Based on the fact that the chimpanzee has DNA is, by chemical similarity, 97% like people. And therefore, they should enjoy full legal... Of course, we don't worry about the human fetus. We just throw that in the ash can out in the back of the hospital. But we worry more about the chimpanzee, delicate little creature. And because he is 97% similar, what do you hear? What do we say right here? What's this? Continuity of being. On a continuity of being, who's most similar structurally in his DNA to a human? Chimpanzee. So who, therefore, should share the same rights as a human? Chimpanzee. What is the idea operating in that statement? Continuity of being. Pagan idea. See how these ideas, they, they start out and they, they just start multiplying themselves all across the board. And we as Christians have to have the discernment to say, wait a minute, something's lurking here. 
Another couplet to think about is truthfulness or false. Anytime you hear the word T-R-U-E, that's true. Or F-A-L-S-E, that's false. How do you know that? What are your stands for determining truthfulness and falsefulness? So, my second point in our notes tonight is watch for universal terms in language. That is one of your big cues that when you hear these things, you are face-to-face with somebody's presuppositions. And it's going to be biblical or it's going to be pagan. But it's going to be lurking there. Point three. This is really uh, slick. Because of points one and two, it follows that regardless of the destructive claims of any viewpoints you hear, I'll tell you, define destructive claims. Regardless of any destructive claims in a viewpoint, the viewpoint always makes positive claims. Or I could say another way, regardless of the negative claims of any viewpoint, it always makes positive claims. Now, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. So, there's no one here tonight that is confused here. I come to you and I tell you, you fundy, you right-wing religious fanatic, look, you have your opinion, the Muslim has his, the Hindu has his, and all truth is relative. Now, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to smash your claim to truth. I'm trying to put you down. And I'm trying to sell you on the idea that I'm being very neutral and objective about it, and you're the bigot, because you have all these little bleats over here. But in trying to put you down with a statement, all views are relative, what have I done? What claim positively have I made? Namely, the claim that I know that all truths are relative. That's a positive claim. I've tried to destroy you, but if you're slick, you're going to come right back and counter-move me. Just like a chess game. Because you're going to say to me, excuse me, since when is all truths relative? You know how you can use this? A judo technique, jiu-jitsu technique of, of carrying the strike further than the opponent wanted to. You know, they throw a punch and you use the momentum, take them down. You know how you can use a little jujitsu here? You turn right around and say, oh, well then your view that all truths are relative must be relative. In which case I can go my very way and it doesn't matter. See? You turn their own position against them and you wipe them out. They intended to destroy you and your dogmatic assertion. And all you're doing is saying, oh, well, if everything is relative, then your view that everything is relative itself is relative. Right? And they never want to do that. Because finally, in the last analysis, everyone has a presupposition and everyone must make a positive claim. Second example of this. This comes out in English literature. There's a thing going on, it's the in thing in the last five or six years, called deconstruction. And basically the idea is that pieces of literature are products of human thought. Human thought is always contaminated with environmental causes. So you always have to deconstruct these things away from what the literature is saying. Example being the American Constitution was written largely by white, property-owning males. So when you read the U.S. Constitution, you're not reading a document that's giving objective ethics. You're really reading the arguments of a certain subclass of the human race. And so, therefore, the U.S. Constitution is not really true. It's just a reflection of a a spastic ejection or a linguistic thing that happened in 1700s. 
Now, what are we going to do to answer that? Very simple. We apply deconstructionism against the deconstructionists and say, oh, well, then your lecture, since you are a PhD, white, male, must be contaminated. We've got to deconstruct you. But they don't ever want to deconstruct themselves. It's always they want to deconstruct somebody else. Because, that's my point, regardless of the negative claims of a viewpoint, it always has its own positive claim. You look for that positive claim and go for it. Turn it right around on their own positive. Somebody comes to you and says, everything is evolving. Everything is evolving? Now, if everything is changing, then the statement that everything is changing is changing. So now what does that do? That makes you totally where you don't have truth at all. But they don't want that. There's got to be at least one thing that isn't changing, namely the statement that everything is changing. So, you know, in spite of the negative statements, they always have a positive. And the positive statement is the betrayer of their presuppositions. That's the juggler vein. That's what you go for, and sometimes it takes time to see this. But the church, for 200 years, has allowed liberalism to set the agenda, has absorbed all these negative hits, and never fired a shot at the positive targets. And we're tired of this, and we're going to stop it. Fourth point. The viewpoint of neutralism, the claim of neutralism, is an attack upon biblical truth. Neutralism is not neutral. It is an assault on the very foundations of the Bible. Proof? That's what I give, again, on page four, I believe, when I go through that. Okay. Now, the rest of the evening, I want to review, if you'll turn over, oh, if you'll turn to page three, I want to illustrate this point, which we've just gone through about neutralism, presuppositions, and so on. Remember I said that no matter what view you have, you have to say something that's true. Now, I, not to scare people, but on page three, I put that little equation. I did that deliberately because people always think that math is objective. I always love it when you get some engineer, unbeliever. Engineers who are unbelievers are fascinating people to work with. Because all engineers basically have to buy into the biblical worldview to make their arithmetic work. Then they turn around in their pride and try to attack the scriptures, and I know I got them nailed every time they do that. Because I come back and attack the foundations for their arithmetic. Oh, can't do that. That's what saves, the, that's what saves engineering. Got to have my math. Yeah, baby, but you've got to have something to make your math work. Let me show you. Let's take this equation. Simple linear equation, okay? Plot that equation and get a straight line. That's why you call it linear. It makes a line. Now, these variables, x and y, and y equals ax plus b, are related, are they not? And what makes the relationship? Those little letters that you see here. This guy and this guy. A and B. Now, what do you suppose would happen to that equation if A and B changed every second and a half? What happens to the equation? Falls apart. I can't make that sucker work if I don't have a constant in there. How do I make my math work without constants? You tell me. Unanswerable question. 
I got to have a constant to make any mathematics work. And 99% of science today is mathematical modeling. And later we're going to deal with the age of the universe. And we're going to deal with all you, well, oh, gee, what about all the scientific proof of the age of the universe? Hey, let's just think about the tools that they're using to answer the question with first. One of the tools is this. We've got to look at the tool or we are coming to the table, sucking up the agenda off the table and then winding up getting faked out because we didn't say, whoa, wait a second. What are the tools that we're using to deal with these questions? Are we thinking through whether the tool is being misused? What's the basis for this tool? What is the basis for using math? We're going to show. Mathematics can only be used as a tool intellectually if the universe exists the way the Bible says it exists, with structure, form, and orderliness. If the universe is not designed the way the scriptures are make it and claim it, that doesn't work. So here's the paradox. People are using tools built on the Bible to destroy the Bible. And we have to point this out. All right, let's come now to something. Uh, if you weren't here last time, I want to go over this because it's too crucial to let go. And those of you who were here last time, it's good to review anyway. Never can review enough. Let's go back to this text. If you'll open your Bibles to Genesis 1 again, please. I want to look at phrase after phrase. Look at your text in Genesis 1. Read verses 1 to 3. You read Genesis 1, 1 to 3, and you look at this text. What do you see different? What do you see the same or very similar? In Genesis 1, 1 to 3, the earth, the universe, everything in it, the heavens and the earth are water, a formless chaos. See verse 2. Okay? Now, what do you notice... In this Enuma Elish, Enuma Elish being a typical piece of literature from the ancient world. And you look up here and you see those first few lines. And do you see, particularly this line here, they mingled their waters together. Look at that line. They mingled their waters together. Now think about what that text is saying. What has the text just got through saying in the previous two lines? When Apsu primeval there begetter, Mumu and Tiamat, she who gave birth to them all, still mingle their waters together, that is asserting something about the nature of those three primal deities and deities. You find that they are water deities you find that God has a material nature in paganism. That God and the universe are one. These aren't spiritual deities distinct from water molecules. They are somehow the water molecules. What we call that dipole strange molecule that's so necessary for life turns out to be part of God. So nature becomes part of God. Now, the similarity is both speak of a watery chaos. The difference is that the pagan sees God and nature as one continuity of being. Here it is. And in the Bible, the create, God exists. He creates outside of himself from nothing. God isn't the water in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created all things. The water is something he created. The water isn't him. 
He's distinct from the water. He pre-existed the water. He put the water molecule together with a verbal command. All right, let's go further down through this text. Notice, again, as, as we look at similarities, you'll see that uh, immediately after this, there are a set of verses that talk about the gods coming into existence. After that primeval God, look at these next lines. When the gods were not called by name, when they had not been brought into being, when they had not been called by their names and their destinies had not yet been fixed. Now, this is interesting. Here's a mark of paganism. The gods come out of a prior universe. In the Bible, who pre-exists? God does. In paganism, what pre-exists? Water. In this case, fire in other cases, some other primeval element in yet other cases, but it's always the same theme. The gods are secondary to the universe. They come out of the universe. Baalism in the Old Testament, those diatribes of the prophets against Baal, are diatribes against this. This is Baalism. And we must understand why God is so careful to curse it. Because it has toxic consequences to your spiritual life. We'll meditate more as we go on in that. Notice one further thing about all these verses. If I were to ask you, of those ten first lines in that piece of literature, what is the mechanism that is being used to generate? Just think about it. What is the mechanism? You see it in that word, when none of the other gods had been brought into being. And then notice about four lines up. See the word that says, Mumu and Tiamat, she who... What, what is she doing? She who gave birth to them all. What is the process of generation? Sexual propagation. Sex. That's always a mark of paganism. It's the generation, the self-generation. In this case, the sexual process is a, quote, natural process, and they're explaining origins by natural processes. And sex to the ancient world was obviously, in the field and elsewhere, was the source of fruit. It was the source of population, the source of workers. It was economically important. So, that became a process. They conceptualized the creation by conceptualizing it in terms of processes they were familiar with. Oh, doesn't that sound familiar? Now come back over to the Word of God. Look at the text of Genesis, verse 3. Learn to be good observers. And I'm teaching you a method, and I hope I'm modeling it correctly for you. Here is one way to study Scripture so it becomes fresh to you. Take a pagan piece of literature that troubles you, that you have to do schoolwork on, or that you're thinking through in your home, or you're homeschooling. And pit it right next to the Bible and compare them right side by side. This is a method that's godly because it brings us back to the authority of Scripture in a concrete way. And we look at this and we see the generational process is explained as sexual production. How is it explained in Scripture? There's a titanic difference here. Look at what the Scripture says in verse 3. What is the means of the generation of pieces of the universe? Language, the Word of God, He speaks. Oh, we're going to come back to see the neat things in that. God speaks these things into existence. Just to give you a tantalizing 
two applications. We'll come back to this in weeks to come. When you read John's Gospel in John 1, how does John rephrase this? Think of what the first couple of verses in John's... What are the verses in John's Gospel? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And then it goes on to say, and nothing was made without the Word. Jesus Christ is the Word. Jesus Christ in John's Gospel is equated with this speech process. Every time God says, let there be light. That's Jesus Christ in that process. That's the Word of God, the living Word. Not a process, not a natural principle. It's a person. The universe was decreed into existence by the Word of God. That's the high, lofty view of Jesus. He's not just a Jewish carpenter walked around in the first century. He is the incarnation of that person who spoke the physical universe into existence. That's who he is. Another little tantalizing application that is awesome to think about, particularly in the 20th century, because it's been under such great attack, is language. Everybody wants to explain language. They want to explain it away. For example, here's the uh, thing about, this is a science book club, and they always have some really good stuff, but it's always slanted from the evolutionary viewpoint. Listen to this. This is a, a book they're reviewing. Then Bickerton considers how language might have evolved. Proto-language, a clumsy string together of symbols, created bigger brains and aided in survival, but did not make us human. In fact, brain sizes within the modern range were first attained a million years ago before seriously enhanced intelligence showed up in the fossil record, etc., etc., etc. What they're trying to do is make language derivative of physical processes. What does the Bible do that's exactly reversed? Genesis 1, 3. Do you see what Genesis 1-3 is saying? It is wholly against, wholly against our modern world. What the Bible says is that language precedes all existence. In fact, language brings existence into being. It was God speaking, not propagating. God speaking that brought physics into existence. F equals M-A. Why, does, why do we have scientific formulas? Because it's the mathematical reflection of what God spoke into existence. Why can the scientist make his mathematical formula? Because prior to the scientist, it was put together that way by a speaking deity. This is powerful implications for the structure of reality around us. And why? When we claim scripture and we pray scripture, Mike has taught us to pray the scripture. This isn't a magical formula that Mike's talking about by praying the scripture. What Mike is trying to get us to do is to come back to the text of the word of God because the text of the word of God is from the same person who spoke every physical formula into existence, who spoke the moon, the earth, the planets, the universe, the chemistry of the DNA is all an expression of the word of God. And so when we pray using the words that that God has told us, we are coming into contact with the fundamental structure of the universe. It's not a magical formula. It's the structure of everything, the Word of God. This is the mighty picture we want to attain of what this little ancient religious book is. This is a depiction of the very codes that structure the universe. See the difference between that and Genesis 1-3. Okay, let's... Uh Let's go on and uh, one, one or two other things. Look down at the bottom of this text. 
we want to show you one other thing. Look at the section here. Look at that section where it talks about he strengthened his hold on the captive gods and then the one that's next to the bottom there. Marduk split Tiamat open like a muscle into two parts and half of it reset in place and formed the sky. He fixed the crossbar and posted the gates. Compare that to verse 7 of Genesis 1 and you'll see a similarity. In Genesis 1, God makes the heavens separate from the earth, from the waters above from the waters below and Sure enough, in the pagan sense, you have the same kind of thing trying to be explained. It's explained, however, as a result of combat, conflict, sinful strife, evil. What do you see in Genesis 1-7? Is there any strife going on in Genesis 1-7? Or is everything just simply being spoken into existence? For those of you who were not here, what we did, if you look at the uh, exercise that we... We should have done for that passage in, on page 8. I gave you two passages. Last week we turned to 1 Kings 22. This week I want to turn to Job chapter 1. Because what are we doing? I hope I'm modeling a process for you. You in home schools and, and you in, in public schools to learn to do this. This is how you sanctify your mind and become strong thinking Christians. Take your situation and dig into the scriptures until you find a counterpoint. Now, in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, you have a meeting that is done in heaven. Here we are. God is peeling aside, just for a moment, his secret counsels. And you talk about the 6 o'clock news. Can you imagine if on the 6 o'clock news every night, for just three minutes, we could glimpse what the angelic meeting of the universe was for the day? I mean, just think of it. Thought experiment here. Just use your creative thinking for a minute. In three minutes, CBS reports on what went on in the angelic councils for the day. Here's what Job 1, 6 through 12 says. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan came among them. And the Lord Satan, from where do you come? And said, I'm going from to and fro on the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man. Satan answered the Lord, yeah, but so forth. You know, it's because you always hand out candy to him. Take away his candy and he's going to curse you. And so in verse 11, put forth thy hand now and touch all he has. And surely he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, now look at verse 12. What I want you to do as you read verse 12 is to... Bang it off of this. Bounce it off this text. What do you see happening here? Here you see the gods attacking each other. Who's in charge? The strongest guy for the moment. That's the guy who's in charge. But he's not really in charge because until another bully on the street rises up, the strong and he is, and he's going to get beat up. So no one's really in charge. And so what we have here in this grand structure is chaos and chance. And paganism always had chaos and chance. You'll see it in ancient paganism. You'll see it in modern paganism. It's always there. It has to be there. Because what does paganism want to do? It wants to eradicate a personal sovereign God. Merv and I were talking today just about what a blessing it is to think of a sovereign God. That he is attractive. And a lot of people think, oh, he makes it responsible. But he's attractive. You know why a sovereign God is attractive? Because in the chaos and goo of life, somebody is in charge around here. Nice to know that when everything's falling apart. Somebody is in charge. 
Now, in verse 12, notice, God says to Satan, all that he has in your hand is in your power, except, don't put your hand on him, his possessions, but not him. Now, how could God restrict another deity, Satan, if you will, how could he do that if he weren't sovereign? Do you see the difference? That's what monotheism is all about. That's what scriptural faith is all about. There's an ultimate power that decides destiny. It's not a tablet. It's a person. So we've come now to review tonight the two fundamental differences. And I want to conclude by having you turn in your notes. If you'll turn over to page 12. Reconciling Genesis and the Evolution Origin Myth. This is what we want to do for next week. And next week's key question is on page 16. Question 1. If you look at that, there's a whole list of verses there that I give you. And what I want you to do is to read through those because I want to begin with you now to prove to you that it's not we fundies in our little storefront churches that are making up this interpretation of Genesis. I want to show you that if you read all these verses, what these verses are, are New Testament authors talking about Genesis. How do they interpret the literature? All we're doing is reproducing what the New Testament authors say about the Old Testament. Now, when the New Testament authors talk about the Old Testament, if you want to write out in the margin of question one, just write out this verse. We won't have time to get into it tonight. But write Galatians 4, 24 to 31 in the margin of, of question one. Galatians 4, 24 to 31. And before you read those verses, go to Galatians 4, 24, 31, because that's a passage where a New Testament author speaks about the Old Testament and he tells you, I'm using it allegorically. So Galatians 4 is a passage that tips you off what it looks like when a New Testament author allegorizes the Old Testament. And I want you to see that because the rest of the verses don't have that signal in them. And therefore, you see all the other verses, the New Testament authors are taking the Genesis literally. Because a little squeamish thing is, some Christians want to try to avoid issues here by making it seem like we're to interpret Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 kind of allegorically. But if that were the case, how come the New Testament authors aren't doing that? Okay? Now, in this lead-up to this exercise, what I'm trying to point out in this section is going to be a little review of church history, because when we get into the Genesis text proper, I want you to be convinced that you've got to watch key issues. I, I review how Genesis uh, has been interpreted, and largely what's happened in the last hundred years, and we're going to go over three or four minutes tonight, but just... Bear with me. Largely in the Genesis text, the church has had a history of trying to avoid controversy by backing up, backing up, backing up, changing this interpretation, changing that interpretation, changing this interpretation, changing that interpretation to try to keep making the scriptures fit the latest scientific theory. And I want you to see where that, that leads. Because you just, we just went through that pagan text and I said there's two big things that characterize paganism from biblical faith. One is chance, and the other is that continuity of being. Now, I give you some quotes in this, in this thing, and we'll look at these next week. I just show you these quotes because I want you to see it's not Clough making this up. This is a well-known thing that I'm telling you tonight. These are quotes by historians of science. And why these quotes are important for you and me 
is that they are admissions by scholars who have spent hundreds of hours examining both modern scientific writings and ancient pagan writings. And they will admit that the same doctrine that underlies the structure of ancient paganism underlies the structure of modern evolution. There it is. Those are the statements. Count Buffon, who was one of the early thinkers two or three hundred years ago, reveals himself as an exponent of the doctrine of the chain of being. Lamarck, who was in a conflict with Darwin. Lamarck held a version of the ancient doctrine of the great chain of being. Olroy, the chain of being is a notion traceable back to Plato. It formed part of the general mental furniture of most educated men from the Renaissance until the end of the 18th century. And we have quotes like this. Far Eastern philosophers thought of creation in evolutionary terms, a belief in an inherent continuity of all creation and second a reference to merging of one species into another. What does Genesis say? One species reproduces what? After its kind. No merging. Sorry. No merging. The universe was evolved. This is a Buddhist statement. Modern Buddhist creed. The universe was evolved, it was not created, and it functions according to law, not according to the caprice of any god. And this is amazing, because that last quote there by Henry Fairfield Osborne, he was the curator of the American Museum of Natural History at the beginning of the 20th century. And look what he says. When I began the search for anticipation of the evolutionary theory, I was astonished to find how many of the pronounced and basic features of the Darwinian theory were anticipated as far back as the 7th century B.C. Now, this is going to shock some of you because all your life you've been told that evolution is a product of 19th century science. And I'm here to say that it's nothing but the old paganism regurgitated and being used to interpret data with. And this is going to raise some interesting questions as we go into the details of Genesis. But in the text, in the handout, if you will do exercise 1-3 for next time, you'll also see I've given you some end notes for the references of where I'm getting some of this material from. I know several of you have asked. There it all is. So we'll meet again next week and we'll go further and we'll have a handout starting our next chapter which gets more into the spiritual side of life. And we're going to take some of these ideas and show you how they impact us spiritually. Father, again, we're so thankful that you give us the Holy Spirit. May he picture to our minds more of who and what you are so that we see a glimpse of your majesty. We become obsessed and occupied with what a great being you are and how magnificent is your creation. And we, Father, pray that as your children living in our time, that we would be the pioneers and the witnesses to the great God who is, over against the pagan darkness of the world in which we live, that tries to make you seem to be an unclear revealer, and make it seem like you yourself are sinning, you yourself are immoral, and that it is we men and women who are just as right and have an arrogant right of existence. So we pray that you would sharpen us as Christians, to be loyal and faithful to who and what you are and to rejoice and enjoy you for who you are as our great creator. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So you all understand what he asked. This question that Jeke asked is a very critical question into the psychology of Satan himself. And of course, we can only speculate because we don't have a lot of scriptural data to go on. 
But this question is handled in great detail in a book by Henry Morris called The Long War Against God. That's where I got some of these quotes from the continuity of being, by the way. The bibliography in that book is awesome. It's a result of 50 years of that man going around debates in this country. 50 years of teaching at a university level. 50 years of being systematically challenged and 50 years of taking notes. I've known Henry Morris very personally and I've never ceased to amaze at his method. This guy is the most organized guy I've ever run across. You know what he does? He walks around and he, he walks through a library and look at Science Magazine and so forth and he just scribbles titles off. And for many, many years he had his elderly mother uh, would type. She'd go after the library and she'd get the, these quotes. And he must have thousands of quotes in a file that are so neat. But anyway, this book deals with this. And the question that Jeek is answering, uh, or trying to asking here is, do you suppose that Satan, when Jesus says Satan speaks out of his own nature, do you suppose that Satan himself convinced himself that God was a creature too, except he, he was there before Satan and so on? Think of this, because there's substance to what Jeek is saying. Let's put ourselves into the position of Satan before his fall as an angel. What would have been the first moment of consciousness of Satan? He comes into existence. He comes into existence. As he comes into existence, he's seeing other creatures come into existence. He suddenly is there. But as Satan comes into existence, who has preceded him, so to speak? God has. So he comes into an environment that's already there. Like we come into an environment that's already there. Can you have a thought that... Can you think through as a human being back to your first consciousness as a child? I don't know what mine was, but it's interesting to try to think about the earliest thought that you ever had in your life. How old were you? Can you remember your most early, early, early period? I think I can remember um, some things, uh, but I don't know how old I was when I remember. I think I can remember. I, I remember distinctly my childhood being in a high chair and listening to the screams and rant and rays of Adolf Hitler. And I can remember my mother saying, it's during World War II, and I can remember her saying, listen to this man. And she was talking to my dad, not me, because I don't, I don't think I was talking that, but I just, I didn't know what I was saying. I just remember in those days it was broadcast by shortwave radio, and the shortwave went up and down, and it made it even more eerie to hear this, like this, and it was just being live broadcast about this man and his speeches. And that was just the remembrance I have of that. But Satan, when he came into existence, had his first conception of God already being there. And he says in Isaiah, I will be like him. In other words, as a creature coming into existence, he, in the mystery of sin, we don't really know, you know, the, sin is a mystery. Ezekiel talks about that. Sin is a strange, strange thing. And Satan decides, you know, I came into existence and I think, he, he got himself to thinking that he could evolve, basically, and rise to become like God. God was so magnificent. Satan was a servant. Satan was one of the key servants of God. And I will one day be king too. A very scarily human thing. Now, one of the stories that Chuck Colson in the book, The Body, tells, it's an eerie story but it reflects the strange thing of sin. He tells the story of the Jewish survivor of Auschwitz, who was an elderly man 
who was brought into the courtroom when Adolf Eichmann had been hijacked out of Argentina by the Israeli Mossad. And you remember they captured him and they brought him to Israel for his trial, for his, his crimes at, at Auschwitz. And here was the grand day of the trial and Eichmann was, was seated with the Israeli police behind the bulletproof glass in the courtroom. And they called for the witness because here in the formal Jewish strict justice, they had to have an eyewitness to the murders. And so in comes this man. I think he was an American citizen who, who went in. Uh, a very elderly man and he walks into the courtroom and he looks through that glass panel at Olaf Eichmann. And what happened next was an amazing thing. He suddenly collapses in, in screens on the floor. And he was later interviewed, I think, by Mike Wallace. And the interviewer asked this man, why did you react that way? Was, were you terrified? Um, did, did Eichmann's presence remind you of the awfulness of all that slaughter? And he said, no, it wasn't that at all. He says, I walked into that courtroom and all the years of my life, ever since I was a little child at Auschwitz, I conceived of those Nazis as monster people. And that day when I walked in the courtroom and I looked through the glass, he was a normal person like me. And it dawned on me, he said, that any one of us could do what he did. And that's what terrified me. I collapsed on the floor in terror of the power of evil. Isn't that a dramatic story? And how biblical. Because it shows us that any person could have been an Eichmann. Any person. But for the grace of God. And that's the mystery. Why did Satan say, I will become like the Most High? Nobody knows. But Jeek has a point here, and it's well taken, Jeek, that it's a very plausible speculation that he thought in terms of what he saw. He thought in terms of his environment. And of course, if he was thinking that way, he was abandoning submission to God as the absolute authority, the creator, the creator over the creature. He was at that point including God in the universe. He was at that point coming into the continuity of being where God was just a little higher up the scale. And all Satan had to do was go up five rungs in the ladder and he could be like God. So yes, very, very good point. Very good question. Anyone else? Don't you have to uh, just believe that Satan is uh, Lucifer, a very brilliant oh, yeah. creature? Uh, I don't think that he had any, you know, believe any myths or. I, I think he knew where he came from, he knew where God came from, and he was just so mad by this power that he wanted to. I, have, I guess I have difficulty believing that Lucifer himself Well, okay, and that's also a good point. The thing that I and Henry Morris makes it far clearer than I have done in his book, The Long War Against God. It's not that there was a myth out there floating in the air that Satan latched onto and thought, gee, that's a good idea. It's more complicated than that because sin distorts mental thought. See, our thought life is not like a computer program. We have this myth that goes on because we can program computers and we have this language and we say, oh, gee, the code's still there. And we code it and it works. And it works tomorrow. And it works the next day. And it works the day after. The fallacy of that is, is that that's not how real language works. 
a computer code is just an abstract symbol. Real language has meaning, and you've got to get meaning into the symbols. P and Q and, and that term in a computer code, all the little variables have to have meanings, and a human being has to give that the meaning. And the computer code itself is the product of someone who is a human being who thought the way the code is expressed. I mean, I've looked at computer code, and you want to, who wrote this? That man is confused. And you spend hours trying to work through this computer code thinking, for I spent two years in graduate school working on a code that some Chinese guy had done. He never documented it. I'll never forget that awful process. But that's not the way language works. That's, it's in a way, naive. Real language is always influenced by this presuppositional stuff, which is in turn influenced by our volition. And this is why the Bible also says that our learning is not neutral. Our learning is not objective. Jesus says, when you obey me, then I'll show you more of myself. In other words, greater revelation is contingent on obedience. And the corollary is that deception is the product of disobedience. So what we are saying here in Satan's situation is, and that's the mystery which comes first, the chicken or the egg, is that when that fall happened, his perceptions of himself, God and the universe, changed instantly. Sin distorts thought. Thought is not neutral. Hearts determine heads. This is why, and if we don't believe this, we don't believe in total depravity. Total depravity is the doctrine that even the computer code going on up here is being manipulated. And this is one of our apologetics in defense of the scriptures. This is why the scriptures become the only norm and standard that we thinking creatures have. We have no other standard. Experience, I will show you in a few weeks. I'll build a chart and we'll take the time-space dimensions of all experience. And we'll show you that experience cannot be the basis of truth. We'll show you also from the basis of logic that logic can't be the basis of truth. Well, if logic and experience are on the basis of truth, then what is the basis of truth? And it turns out only God, that the scripture, can be the basis of truth. He controls both the logic and the experience. So what Satan did, as one person said, think of a moment in time. If we diagram this as a timeline of Satan's life, and here's the point of the fall, TF. Prior to this point, for all time T, less than TF, during this time interval, Satan knew something about God. After TF, after this interval, there is a mystery that happens. In the one sense, does he know more about God, plus knowledge of God? Well, yes, because now he sees God's wrath that he probably in a different way than he ever saw it before. Now he sees not just God as holy, but now God is wrathful. Something has stirred in the soul of God, in the spirit of God. And so Satan gains knowledge he did not have before as a result of his sin. But there's a strange other corollary that now he has less knowledge than he has before in another aspect. And that's because as a result of his sin, what does the Bible always say about sin? Sin does what to the heart? It hardens it and darkens it. What does Paul say in Romans? Their reasonings become vain and the heart becomes dark. That's why when the gospel comes in and we personally believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
in second, one of the passages I have you look at in exercise 1.3 is 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And you know in that passage, do you know what the illustration Paul gives of the gospel? Genesis 1.3. What's happening in Genesis 1.3? The universe is dark and what does God say? Let there be light. Paul says that day of light is like the gospel dawning in our hearts. When God the Holy Spirit opens our heart to who Jesus Christ is, what happened on the cross? That act, whatever that act is, is of equal importance and depth as that act when he brought into existence light into the universe. Isn't that awesome? Paul uses the first day of creation to be an analog to the evangelization of the heart. Now, when Satan sinned, his knowledge splits. In one sense, it becomes quantitatively greater. He does know, as a result of his sin, more about God. But qualitatively, something happens to that knowledge that now he's alienated personally in a personal hostility and animosity to God. And we have a, an analogous experience in all of our lives. Anybody who's been married more than five minutes knows that when you're close to someone, you know what it means. You don't even have to say words. You know what it means when you're on the outs with that person. There's just bad vibes, right? Now, doesn't our relationship with a person color how we think? You betcha it does. And we all experience this. Why do we have such theological difficulty understanding this problem? In a far more profound way, after we sin, our thoughts, our emotions, and everything else have been affected now. And, and we can't get them right. I had a great discussion today for lunch where we were talking about this principle that ultimately this revolves on a personal relationship with God. And if you can't try like this, when our knowledge goes dark because of our sin, when we feel alienated from God, what we try sometimes to do is crank out a, a replacement righteousness. And it becomes a sterile, dead principle of legalism. And we offer this up as a fig leaf to cover our nakedness. And it doesn't cover our nakedness because that's fake. It's phony. It's the product of a counterfeit relationship. So this is, is, the knowledge becomes fakey, but it becomes greater. So, wrapped up in the ball of wax here, somehow, apparently Satan's knowledge becomes greater, but I think the part of his darkening of his heart is that he too becomes subservient to this continuity of being idea. And the reason I, I would defend that is because if you look at the text in, in, in Isaiah 14, I will become like God. It's a perfect depiction of climbing a ladder. He sees there's no, he's claiming there there's no distinction. Ultimately, no, no unbridgeable chasm. There's no grand canyon that separates God from him. It's just a matter of a mountain. God's higher right now, but there's a pathway up the mountain, and I will climb the pathway. Now, that's a different picture, isn't it, of God being on, on the other side of the grand canyon, and I'm over here, and I don't have a bridge. Now, the grand canyon is the truth. That's the true picture of what's going on. The mountain with a mountain trail on it is the false one. And it's the mountain trail that's depicted in Isaiah 14. Any other questions? Yes, Merv.
What has happened here, what Merv is talking about is that when Jesus says Satan has no truth in him, that must not be talking about this. This is the quantitative increase in the knowledge of God brought by sin. I mean, anybody that's been disciplined by God has an additional appreciation for his character. So Satan knows more about God, but this thing down here, this new counterfeit information, this distortion that occurs, really isn't even worthy of the name truth. And in that passage, Merv points out, Jesus says, there is no truth here. And of course, we know in, in John's discourses of Jesus, truth is very personal there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So John is arguing that this is a personal thing. And what's lost here, at this point, sin destroys the person, a personal nature of truth. And if you think about it, that's not a mystery, is it? Because what's the fundamental testimony of Scripture? What is sin? Sin is my arrogance and pride against God. I have ruptured the personal relationship. So if, I, if truth is a personal, if real knowledge is personal, and sin enters, I, I, it's all gone. <laughs> and it becomes this mechanical kind of counterfeit type stuff. So the personal nature of God is very, very important. And uh, I think that we have some exciting stuff to show you where you can show that logic... True logic, right and wrong, law, arithmetic, everything derives from this person that we know and we call the Lord whom we love, the triune God. It's amazing. Yes, ma'am. Very good question. That's not a child's question. That's a good question. And uh, children have good questions too. In fact, by the time we're age six, we have really all the basic questions asked of our parents. They might go, yeah, call back that later or something like that. But Christian, little kids have the neat knack of deflating the adult ego by the questions they ask and shows that little creatures made in God's image from a very early age. But in all seriousness, the question here is, what language did God speak? What, what is his language? And we want to deal with that. We are, believe it or not, going to deal with that question as we go on in this series. But let me give you a little preview, and then this will have to be the last question because I promised you I'd be out of here by nine. There are scholars in the 19th century. There were a number of Christians who, were, who, who asked this question. The sad thing is, in church history, is that in the 20th century, the, even the Christian scholars kind of laugh at the question. In the 19th century, this was a serious question. And here's how they went about answering it. What was the language that God used to speak to Adam, for example? The answer that came out of those studies in the 19th century was that the language that God used was a basic Semitic-like language. And this was not just a guess. Here's the logic behind that answer. The Semitic language, corpus, 
There's a number of languages which happened at Babel, and, and the human race is fractured into various linguistic categories. But the Semitic tongues, that is Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic, those Semitic languages are very conservative with time. When I was starting to study Hebrew, uh, an Israeli professor that I had through sort of a correspondence course told me that if Moses rose from the dead and walked down the streets of modern Jerusalem today, he could converse with any child in the street and would be understood. In other words, the Hebrew language has not changed that much with time. It has, bo has, it has borrowing words like autobots. And we know that that's the word for bus, and I'm getting that out of our English language. So there's borrowings. But the Semitic core has not changed with time. And what is intriguing is that in the Semitic languages, the word for man and woman... Semitic languages, I understand the argument, and I may be wrong, but I think this is the argument, that it's one of the few areas where the word for man and woman is the same noun with a, with a feminine ending on it in its stem, its archetypical stem. It's ish and isha, I-S-H, I-S-H-A. And when God made this, God made man, there's certain ways that that is structured in the text and spoken of. The word for Eve, Shiva, for life. If you have a Jewish friend sometime, you'll see them like we wear crosses on their jewelry. You'll see a Jewish friend, they'll have this on their jewelry. In place of the cross, they'll have something that looks like this, which is the Hebrew chay. And that's the word, it's the first word for this word for life. And that's what that means on their jewelry. And the, the pun on the name would be meaningless in any other language except Semitic. So these scholars argue that there are structures in the stories of the Old Testament that would be nonsense in any other language than a Semitic-type language. And so the idea is that it's the Semitic language today that closely approximates whatever happened pre-Babel, the pre-Babel language in time. And we also know another interesting fact about language is that language cannot be learned except another person teaches it. And you've heard stories about feral children, F-E-R-A-L. Feral children are children in weird cases that have been, so to speak, raised by...